things that go into making success and cultivation so you won't run short. Faith is one of them. <laughs> Faith is the source of the way. Remember, this is right from the Avatamska. Faith is the source of the way. You can't even begin this journey unless you have some faith and trust. Faith that there is, in fact, a city, that this guy's not a charlatan and saying, you know, come with me, I'll lead you into the desert to find a great city. And then you find out, well, there was no great city. It was a huge pyramid scheme. <laughs> I don't want to make references to contemporary affairs too much, but you can see that this faith means you have to have faith in this merchant leader, but you also have to have faith in yourself, in your own capacities. So the provisions are your own faith, they're your good roots. Also, it could be the companionship. Nothing's more important when you're cultivating than to have good Dharma friends. Having good Dharma friends. Good Dharma friends always tell you what you want to hear. They butter you up and honey you sweetly. They say that you're the wisest one at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery, and so these are really good Dharma friends. Okay? <laughs> Tongue-in-cheek. Okay, what are the other provisions? Well, think of the paramitas. Giving, morality, patience, vigor, concentration, wisdom. All of these could be seen as provisions to have in store. Because to get to the end, you need them. You need them. I would say among these, <laughs> uh, I would say patience is really the biggie. Patience is really the, the one to, to sustain. Because you can start out and uh, you think, well, we're going to get to the city in a week. And it goes on, and then you start to lose patience. You lose patience with the teacher, you lose patience with the teachings, you lose patience with yourself. So my teacher always used to say, if you're on the path correctly, and you will work hard, then all you have to have is patience, and certainly you'll arrive. Only fear that you won't be patient and work hard. That's the requisite. So patience is really one of the provisions you need. And um, I'm going to do the Jataka tonight, and you'll see how this parallels this text, because many of the Jatakas uh, have the illusions are in the text, and there's a couple of really key jatakas that talk about the bodhisattvas emergently. So the one we're going to come back to tonight is this one. But you'll see how this text, estimating, considering, um, inquires about the drawbacks of the route, halting places, and so on and so forth, so they reach it safely. Now, safely reaching it means what? What can happen to you if you start to begin on this path, but you, say you don't safely arrive? How do you get waylaid? Well, there's bandits and robbers, right? There's thieves. Whoa. Who are they? The very same people that were buttering you up. <laughs> In a way, yes. Okay, who are the thieves? Well, Waidao, uh, literally Waidao thieves, these are what? What is Waidao? Outside the path. Outside the path. Outside means not pointing you to that liberation and enlightenment comes within. It is within your own nature to realize the way. This is what Waidao really means. To seek the way outside of the purification of your own mind is Waidao. It's not referring to some extraneous or uh, foreign teaching, but rather mistaking what's within and not cultivating it. 
Why seek outside? Says the Han Chan in his poetry. Buddha is within. Where else are you going to find Buddha except through the cultivation and purification of your own mind? Buddha is your nature. So why Tao is the the example that's used in the Lotus is the prodigal son who's got the jewel sewn in his clothing but thinks he doesn't have anything and feels he's impoverished and poor. Whereas his father sewed the jewel in his clothing but he doesn't recognize his own wealth. So why God is to not recognize your own innate potential and is to think, I'm insufficient, I'm, I'm inadequate, I don't have it, I have to find it through something outside my own nature. So this is the most important meaning of why Tao. It's not a criticism of other religions as sometimes people render this. The thieves are also, though, anybody know? Thieves and bandits? How these appear in metaphors in Buddhism? How about yoga? IRS. No, what are they? <laughs> three poisons. The three poisons. Actually, the thieves and bandits are many called the afflictions. Banao, klesha. So again, the thieves and bandits are within your own nature too. These are your bad habits and faults, negative emotions, attachments, graspings, fears, anxieties, worries, stress. Stress is a big bandit. You say, oh no, no, no. Oh, no. Well, stress is a huge bandit. Why do you get exhausted and wasted and prematurely old? Who robbed you of your life? Stress. <laughs> you know? If we could find a cure for stress, we'd all be living a lot longer. That doesn't mean our lives would be better. <laughs> it would just be longer. <laughs> better life is another question. So sometimes, and sometimes they call the demon armies as being the things you encounter, or goblins and ghosts and spirits. But these are just metaphors for that which we obstruct ourselves with, <coughs> that which we outflow through. So if you don't use your eyes well, and you're not careful what you watch, your eyes become a thief. They steal away your essential energy. If your ears are not attuned and used properly, they become a source of losing your wealth. Eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, even your mind, if you don't use it well and think correctly and use it in a you know, beneficial, clear way, becomes a source of stress and drain and whatnot. Conversely, if used well, if these are planned for, they become the source of awakening. So cultivation never goes up much beyond what we're doing with our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. Using it well, it's the way. Misusing it, it's afflictions. That's why it says afflictions is bodhi. Bodhi is just afflictions. Depends on how you use it. So this is really important. So we got all that. We got any other metaphors we're missing here? There's probably lots more. But we have the requirements, won't run short. Uh, we talked about the perils to their safety. Uh, the root itself, the mere drawbacks of the roots, knowing that. Because some places it's going to get bumpy. Some places it's going to be difficult. Halting places along it. What does it mean by the halting places? Where you rest. Now what this means is you use vigor, but you have to know when to rest too. You can't say, I'm going to get enlightened in a week and I'm never going to sleep 24-7. There's no halting place there. And so you end up, if you don't rest at the right time, you'll not get there. 
Have any of you done long journeys where, you know, it's time to pull over and have lunch at a little rest area? And then it's time to call it quits for the night. You can't just keep taking speed and caffeine and going 24-7 driving, driving, driving. You may go right past the city. Right? Like the pilots who flew past their destination. <laughs> they entered a kind of samadhi and they missed their destination. <laughs> Halting places means knowing when to rest. This is very important. The middle way. You know, when the Buddha started out, he didn't have this clear, remember? the story of the Buddha's own path, he thought by mortifying his flesh, by actually doing unbeneficial ascetic practices, getting down to eating one sesame seed and one grain of rice a day. You're saying, wow, it must have been a humongous grain of rice. No, it was just a little grain of rice and one little sesame seed. He was trying to subdue his passions and desires, trying to subdue his mind through mortifying and disciplining the flesh. And of course, he realized at some point that not only did this not uh, lead to enlightenment, it didn't even lead to equanimity. And so he moved away from that and accepted an offering, remember, of the rice, uh, milk rice, very variations of what he had, and then he took the middle way. So this extreme he went to was there was no halting place. So knowing when to rest, knowing when to move is really critical. I'm saying this metaphorically, but each of us has to know what it is that is our middle way. It's not like the middle way is the middle way. The middle way is getting between the extremes of your life. And yours, your extremes, your individual extremes, are going to be different than somebody else's. So the middle way for the Buddha is to avoid the extremes of hedonism, okay, indulging, but also in mortification between you know nihilism and eternalism. But that, for everybody, is a different place. Take the simple things like, when is enough clothes? Now, if you, I look around the room, some people look like they're going skiing. Because <laughs> they're dressed up and bundled and whatnot. And other people look like they just got back from Cancun. <laughs> right? So, and I'm assuming you're all comfortable. But what is one person's comfort is another person's extreme. And what one person's extreme is another person's comfort. The middle way is different. How about eating? Some people need to eat three meals a day. For some people, three meals a day is way over the top. I can't eat three meals a day. I couldn't, couldn't digest all that food. My mother could not not eat three meals a day. She had to have three meals a day. And to her, it was inconceivable how I couldn't eat that. And to me, it was inconceivable how she could. But that was her middle way, and I had my middle way. Same thing with emotions. Same thing with careers. How much money is your middle way? <clears throat> Knowing when it's enough is the middle way. <laughs> Knowing enough sufficiency is the middle way, and this is very hard to find. It's very hard to find because we're always itching always think we don't have quite enough. Isn't this true? Jurzu Changlin. Knowing enough, that's what happiness is. You're always happy if you know enough. But this sounds so simple, but it's not. So knowing when to halt, knowing when to stop. The text says, knowing when to stop, never in danger. 
Knowing enough, always happy. Very simple sounding. Very hard to, very hard to do it. Like eating. When's enough? When they bring the bad food. <laughs> if it's good food, you go away from the table saying, how did I do that? And if it's bad food, you're going away saying, I wonder if there's anything in the refrigerator I can, because you don't need enough. So, you know, knowing what enough is, is there, and actually, uh, now they've done a study. Uh, the worst thing for you is fast food. Now, I mean by fast food, not only food that's made fast, but food that you buy fast, and most importantly, food that you eat fast. Like, I see people walking down the streets that got their iPods on, right? Listening to iPods, and sometimes they're kind of looking at a book, and they're eating at the same time. This is fast everything. But if you look at it biologically speaking, uh, when you eat food, when it gets to your tummy, see, your body goes at a different pace. Your body goes, oh, food, hmm. And then when you eat the food and it finally gets to be enough, the body, the, the stomach, has some hormones and neurotransmitters, and it says, that's enough, go tell the brain. And they say, okay, here we go, to tell the brain. And it takes a while for the brain to get the message that that's enough. And then it says, I'm full. But if you eat it fast, and you don't get that chance, you will keep eating and eating and eating. The messenger never gets, and by the time it gets to the brain, you're already overloaded. So it's really important to find a way to slow down and listen to yourself to know what your middle way is. This is really critical. All right, and what food to eat when? So now it's like winter. You don't want to eat a lot of ice cream. Right? I mean, this sounds so simple. And at certain times, food is really medicine. It's part of the chant we do at lunch. Food is medicine. You take it according to what you need. And knowing when to eat the right kinds of foods and when to lay off, there's kind of wisdom there. Hmm. Okay. And they reach safely the great city, and they avoid all disasters. Disasters would be... There's big disasters, middle disasters, and small disasters. Name some disasters. Analogy again. Emotional breakdown. You have an emotional breakdown. There we go. That's a pretty good disaster. Emotional disaster. Now we have to say these are generally going to be internal disasters. One disaster might be you go back to your old group of friends. <laughs> you know, you sort of draw near Buddhism and you're doing fine. You go to a retreat, you're feeling really good, and then the friends call up and say, yeah, man, you've been getting too, too spiritual. Why don't you come out and hang out again? We're going to go out and smoke some weed, and da-da-da-da-da. And then you do that, and pretty soon you're all scattered again. Okay? It's going back to a relationship that wasn't healthy. That's another way of a disaster. It's losing your resolve, becoming impatient. Okay? Uh, it's entertaining wrong ideas. Oh, well, other people are subject to cause and effect, but I'm above it. <laughs> All of these are disasters. So you can see in the list of the, this is, the analogies become very, very rich. For me, I think the most important thing in using analogies in Buddhism is to always bring it back to the mind ground. That is to say, to bring it back to the mind as a source. Each way shins out. Everything is made from mind alone. That means in these analogies, 
do not start looking for disasters and provisions of these things as externals, but rather as internal descriptions of psychological and spiritual capacities and states. These aren't things that outside that bombard us. No one obstructs us but ourselves. No one can and no one may. <laughs> it's, it's, it's along these lines. Then the analogy will work for you. If you start to externalize it and say, oh, I don't have the right way place, I haven't found the right recitation, um, and so so-and-so who gave me the precepts wasn't as powerful as so-and-so who gave me the precepts. I saw this uh, when I was traveling throughout Asia. I always thought you'd take refuge with the triple jewel, right? Gui Fo, Gui Fa, Gui Sun. Well, but I saw people who were taking refuge week after week after week. They were taking refuge. Every Dharma master that came through, they'd take refuge again. <laughs> and it was like, well, if you take refuge in the triple jewel, you're taking refuge with the wisdom of your own nature, for you're taking refuge with the correctness, the rightness of your own nature, that's fa, and you're taking refuge with the purity of your own nature, that's sun. Now, it's not like, oh, I took refuge with Dharma Master so-and-so, but Dharma Master so-and-so is more powerful, so I'm going to take refuge and get all my bases covered. And these people were not only taking refuge with all the Buddhist masters coming through, then a Christian evangelical would come through and they'd take refuge with them. I mean, they were going all over the place, and this is to not see that it's made from the mind. Once you take refuge, you've taken refuge. Once you take the precepts, you're taking the precepts. It's not like the power of those comes from somebody else. The power comes from within your own heart. This is really, really important. So, see the analogies as metaphors. Okay, any questions? Let's go on. And finish this. Places of danger 
until they safely arrive at the city of Sarvajna. He and all living beings do not experience disasters. Therefore, the Bodhisattva should never be lax and should cultivate the most supreme pure karma of all the grounds, up to including attending towards and entering the ground of the Vasakamwan's wisdom. So now, the text then goes on to explain the analogy. The Bodhisattva is that merchant leader. He's also like the merchant leader in the story. And while abiding or uh, staying within the first ground of his, his accomplishment, he is good or skillful at knowing the remedies for obstructions to all the grounds. Um, my teacher used to say, there's nothing that obstructs you. When I would ask him, I would say, oh, I have this obstruction, or this obstruction has come, or um, I'm, a, I'm obstructed by that person, <laughs> or I'm obstructed, I won't say who the people were, but there was always somebody obstructing me, or some situation that was obstructing me, or some food was obstructing me, or sleep was obstructing me. And my teacher would always say, there is no obstructions that are outside. Whatever you can't see through and let go of is your obstruction. Whatever you can't see through and let go of, that's what obstructs you. When you can see through and let go of it all, you're free. It's a zai. There's no obstructions. So again, his teaching was always to say, don't see the obstructions as being outside, but see the obstructions as what you can't see through and let go of. So this is really important. So he's good at knowing this, and even though we know this, something arises, we still will blame somebody or something else for our obstructions. We're all of us victims in this way. And what Buddhism is empowering you to see is that the obstructions really are our own confused seeing, what we grasp and attach to, and what we can't let go of. Including knowing how to purify all the bodhisattva grounds, all of the ten grounds, and, and then enter into the ground or the, the conditioner state. Ground is used here as... Um, a literal translation, it means the state or the condition of the thus come one. Then it says, equipped with the provisions of blessings and wisdoms. Why blessings and wisdom? Now these are the provisions we didn't mention, but obviously the text is referring to these as being the most essential provisions, blessings and wisdom. Why? What are blessings? And how are they different than wisdom? Anybody remember the famous analogy that's used? Cultivating, okay, what is it? Let's see if we get it. Cultivating blessings and not cultivating wisdom is like, analogy again, it's like an elephant, but what kind of elephant? An elephant with a Tiffany necklace. <laughs> okay, so cultivating blessings but not cultivating wisdom is like a big fat elephant with a Tiffany necklace and platinum hair. <laughs> okay, I'm extending it. Now, cultivating wisdom without cultivating blessings is like yeah, and a hungry arhat or an arhat with an empty bowl. And the bowl isn't empty because he hasn't started his arms round. His bowl is empty after his arms round. So what's the meaning of this, if we take this apart? You have to cultivate both. 
Well, let's, let's, before we say we have to cultivate both and talk about the wisdom of that, let's talk about what's the elephant with the Tiffany necklace and the platinum here and the high heels? What's that? Blessings here then turn out to be the kind of good things in your life, the material rewards that come from cultivating, giving, and so on and so forth. These are material rewards you get. It's a kind of wealth. It's a kind of material wealth. And it's said in the, in the teachings that one has blessings if one receives this. So again, this is very important. The return of goodness and generosity and sharing and giving is that you get material wealth, either in this life, your next life, or future lives. But these blessings in and of themselves are nothing more than adornments. They're like necklaces and jewelry on a big elephant that doesn't know what to do with it. They just sort of walk around saying, look at me, I'm really Hollywood handsome, you know. <laughs> I got all these jewelries, I drive a Porsche, you know, and I've got cosmetics and so on and so on. So what? Who draws near to somebody like that? Well, people who don't have lives and are really caught up in celebrity. You know, buy People magazine and look at, oh, I wish I were like him or her, you know so on and so forth, and they say, buy this watch, you buy this watch. You know, that's like the elephant selling you things. <laughs> there's no meaning to this. So this means that you have these blessings, but there's no wisdom, and so you're just rich and fat and sassy, and there's not much going on. Okay? Now, the opposite is, if you cultivate wisdom, now what's meant by wisdom here? Let's be clear. This particular type of wisdom is referring to what? Now, you have to think, because it's like an arhat, so you have to... You know, Wisdom. Could be a world transcending wisdom, but it's more referring to Liberation. samadhi, self-cultivation, meditation, and insight only. All you want to do is resolve this matter for yourself. You don't want to be caught up in birth and death anymore. And so you resolve to reach that stage where you're free of this kind of trouble. But at the same time, you just pull back and you only cultivate this for yourself. So you don't really share. You're not, you don't teach, you don't translate, uh, you don't share, you know, this with, and so forth, you end up with this wisdom, but then there's no material support for you. That's why it said the arha with the empty bowl. So, the goal now to come back is to cultivate both. Blessings with wisdom. Yangzu zun. Oh, what's that? That's the doubly two-footed one. <laughs> oh, no. There was someone who translated that way. Yangzu zun. It means doubly complete, right? And some scholars said, oh, this means the Buddha has really two good-looking feet. Well, I'm sure the Buddha did have good-looking feet. I mean, he had the hallmarks and characteristics, but in this case it talks to be doubly replete with blessings and wisdom. Then you're able to cultivate, and you're able to share, and you're able to give both. Okay, so this is, this is what it means blessings and wisdom, to be replete with blessings and wisdom. And that's what the Bodhisattva is doing. The Bodhisattva cultivates others while cultivating him or herself. He benefits others by benefiting himself. He benefits himself by benefiting others. These are non-dual. This is the re what it means to cultivate blessings and wisdom. It means while you're cultivating, you teach. You teach as much as you cultivate. And the more you teach, the more you cultivate. The more you cultivate, the more you can teach. The more people ask you difficult questions, the more you study. The more you study, the more you can say more interesting things, and they're going to ask you more difficult questions. And this goes back and forth, back and forth, mutually rubbing each other. 
This is how, when the Bodhisattva says, I won't accomplish Buddha until all living beings accomplish it, he means together. Remember I gave you the song last week? Together we will go, my Dharma friends and I, together we'll realize perfect enlightenment, this song from my teacher, together. So blessings and wisdom together. Teaching and transforming. You don't wait until you're enlightened to teach. Right? Yeah, but I have problems. You have a problem. <laughs> yeah, because my horse still not all right. So how can I teach? Your what is it right? I mean the horse I speak ah. still not not right yet. So if I just say the right ones. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't have the true wisdom to tell the What is true wisdom? See, true wisdom is something that is not a fixed commodity, but it grows. Whatever wisdom you have, you should speak it. Now, for some of us, that's a couple words. For a bodhisattva, it's unlimited eloquence. It's like the stream that never dries up. But you don't even hang on to it. If you've got one word of wisdom, you speak it. That's giving. If you hang on to it, you're being stingy. <laughs> if you have two words of wisdom, give them both. Right? If you got ten, whoa, you're really wealthy. So the idea is to not be stingy and not wait. Not wait until you get to some state, but share right along. Share right along. And this means you only speak true. You speak what you know. You speak true from the heart. You don't make up something. Okay? And then, by speaking that, you plant a seed to get even deeper wisdom. But if you hang on to it, you're stingy with it, it won't grow. Right? So you plant the seeds. The last thing you want to do with seeds is put them in a jar and put them in your cupboard. I'm keeping my seeds. They're going to grow something. No, it's just all accumulating. Spread the seeds. Right? Let it grow. This is how you work it. Okay? So don't wait until you have the wisdom of all wisdoms before you speak. By that time, you'll have no voice left. <laughs> okay? And so it says, provisions of blessings and wisdom leads them across the wilderness of birth and death. Now, we talked about it as the way, but here we have more the idea of going from one side to the other, you know, crossing the stream. So sometimes the analogy in Buddhism is, is the stream, it's the water, and the water is treacherous and swirls and waves. This is called the, the river or the, the wild stream of birth and death. Here we have an opposite, a waterless metaphor, meaning the wilderness of birth and death. And so this is uh, compared to uh, us wandering in a wilderness where there aren't any uh, fruits or vegetables, there isn't any water, there's no signs or markers, it's like this vast wilderness and we're wandering along. Sometimes we're going in circles. Right? And the circle would be <laughs> samsara, wandering in the wilderness. This isn't, I must say that this is both something that people often have in dreams when they draw near to Buddhism. They have this vision or they have dreams of them lost in a wilderness and suddenly finding something. This was a state when I first went to Golden Monastery. I felt uh, in my dreams I was wandering in wildernesses without guides, without help, exposed to many perils. And then after I found Golden Mountain Monastery, the whole thing turned. It was just like finding this wonderful cabin with lights and a fireplace going in the midst of a wilderness. This was drawing near to the, to the Dharma, to the teachings. 
So the wilderness of birth and death describes a psychological, spiritual state of an empty life, of us wandering, not in a virtual, real wilderness, but a psychological, spiritual wilderness, of wanting and getting things but never being happy with what we get, never knowing satisfaction and contentment, consuming and buying and yet never really being happy or full. Seeking and searching, never getting what we seek and search for. This is the wilderness. The wilderness is the loss of meaning and purpose in our lives. We're just going from high to high, rush to rush, up and down, back and forth. This is a kind of wilderness. You don't have compass. You don't have direction. You're just pulled around by emotions and uh, feelings, and up and down and up and down, like crossing over one hill, crossing over another, crossing over one hill, crossing over another. Um, my analogy was when I was young, uh, I went into the wilderness uh, in the Badlands of the Dakotas, and it was early in the morning, and I was uh, with a friend, and I thought, okay, we'll take a little canteen, and we'll go out for a little walk before lunch, uh, breakfast, and we come back, and so we had the canteen, we started out, it was nice and cool in the morning, and, uh, you know, it got to be a little later, and we were drinking, getting warm, so well, we'll just kind of turn around and go back, we'll be back in an hour. Turn around an hour later, nothing. Just one hill after another hill after another hill. And so I said, well, we'll go to that top of the hill and see if we can spot where the car is. We get to the top of the hill, 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 in all directions, no car. Wow, we gotta, so we keep going. And pretty soon the water is getting down and down and down and down and down until it's gone. And now it's noon and we have no water and there's no water. Well, this goes on and on and on. We keep thinking we get to the next hill and get to the next hill and you just see hundreds of other hills wandering in this wilderness. And then we look and we're being followed by a buffalo, a bison. And I don't know why, and this bison was, you know, from here to the back of the room. And we had stopped, the bison would stop. We'd walk, the bison would follow us. And a bison's kind of scary. They're not like little rabbits. These are huge animals. At first I thought it was because the bison smelt the water in the canteen. But once it was gone, the bison was just interested in following us. I don't know if they're vegetarian or not. <laughs> and this went on and on, and finally to the point where you were just going to say, I'm going to die. And so my companion says, if we don't see something on this next hill, I'm going to give up and die. Because now it was, the sun was going down. And we had been without water. And it was very, very hot. It was like 120 degrees. And we're wandering, wandering, wandering. And so I said, I go up to this next hill. I get to the next top of that next hill, and I look. And just hill after hill after hill. I'm going, oh my gosh. This is a disaster, right? And then just as the sun goes down, you know, it, it shines that flash across this, and it flashed on something in the distance that reflected. And I thought, that must be the windshield of the VW bus. And so I set a course for that. And I said, come on, come on, we got to... I wasn't the good leader here. I was just saying, <laughs> this is our only hope. And sure enough, you know, two and a half hours later, there it was, we bumped right into the van. And so we had a big thing of water in there, and we put it on the top and poured the water over us and so on and so forth. Um, really grateful, and then we crashed for three days in complete shock. So that is a, an actual real experience that gives a metaphor for how one's life is if we're not in the way. If we're not really motivated by the resolve for Bodhi, it's just like this experience I described. One hill after another, one thing after another, one job after another. The days go on, the weeks go on, there's birthdays, and pretty soon we're old and wondering, Shalaisa, 
what's, what's the meaning? What happened here? My life is gone, and what do I have for it? You know, this kind of thing. So this wilderness of birth and death is talking about that existential experience, but it's also talking about how, in fact, we go through birth, life, and death, birth, life, going, turning on the wheel. Okay? With all its place of danger, they arrive safely at the city of, and this is misspelled, it's not Sabarjna. It's Sarvajna. So all of you take note in the book here, it should be S-A-R-B-A. That's Sanskrit for all or complete. Sarvajna jna is knowing, gnosis, so all wisdom. This is, uh, here it's transliterated, Saporo, Saporo. For some reason, that is a Chinese version of Sarvajna, Saporo. Sometimes this is also translated. So this is translated. Sa po ro chung. Chung is a metaphor. It's also, when it's translated, it's called yi che jir, all wisdom. So sarvajna is either rendered as yi che jir, all wisdom, or it's translated as sa po ro chung. Now, of course, there isn't an actual city called all wisdom, but this is a state where one has reached this place. He and all living beings do not experience disasters. Therefore, the Bodhisattva is never lax, never unattentive, really mindful, vigilant, and watchful. And again, you'll see in the Jataka, I'll tell you tonight how this plays in. And cultivates the most supreme, pure karma of all the ground. Only by purity can one arrive. Only through pure karma can there be pure fruit. If the seed is just a little bit off, the fruit will be disordered. This is right from the Chirangama, remember? Everybody, how many of you have read the Chirangama? How many of you know what I meant when I said Chirangama? A couple hands are going up. What's the Chirangama? What is the Chirangama? Anybody know the Chirangama mantra, the Chirangama sutra? Ananda got into trouble. So it's a teaching that is, takes place with the Buddha teaching his cousin Ananda. Okay? It's a very profound Mahayana teaching about the nature of the mind and about the states of the mind and the importance of self-cultivation and so forth. It's a fascinating sutra. Why did I bring it up? I lost my path in this wilderness now. Why did I bring up the shrung? Oh, period. Thank you. <laughs> In the Sharanam it says, if the seed is a little bit crooked, the fruit will be distorted. In other words, if on the causal ground your intentions and motivations and your, your karma is not pure, the results will not be true fruit. Okay, so this is very important. And then it talks about the four unalterable or the four definitive aspects of purity. And it says, when you cultivate the path, your mind should be as straight as lute strings. So now all of you are thinking, or Hung Shur's guitar strings. That's just another form of lute. So when you look at Hung Shur's guitar strings when it comes back, notice how straight they are. If they're crooked, they don't work right, do they? So the lute strings, that's how your mind should be perfectly straight, like lute strings. And what's the other metaphor they use? And as pure as glistening frost, as pure as glistening frost. 
Now, in the last couple of days, most people in Berkeley say, glistening frost, what's that? But now, since we had the temperatures drop below 30, I was scraping glistening frost off my windshield. And people in Berkeley never having seen glistening frost before all ran up into the hills to see glistening frost. And I called my relatives back in the Midwest and I said, do you realize that the CHP had to go up in the hills and control traffic and turn people away? And they said, what, there's a disaster? I said, no, it snowed. And they said, what? I said, there was an inch of snow and everybody wanted to get up and see it. And I said, what? <laughs> and I said, yeah, kids were trying to grab it and take it to school for show and tell. And even my little niece is saying, what, that's crazy. Because there, they just had 17 inches fall. <laughs> and they have it all the time. So anyhow, if you don't know what glistening frost is, here is this idea. If you look at glistening frost in the morning, it's like diamonds. It is so pure. The crystals of the water are so pure that they're like diamonds glistening. If you've ever seen that in when the uh, mist falls on the trees and then it turns into frost, that's the image that you want to have. That's what purity is, and that's what this text is talking about when it says pure karma. Tending towards entering the thus come one's wisdom. Okay, so in order to finish tonight in time, what I'm going to do is then read to you uh, or finish the uh, Jataka story that I started last week. Okay, now to refresh and review, what did we end up with last week? Where did we cut off? What had happened so far? See, it's just like the movies. You have to show last week this happened, and now tonight we're going to do this. So what happened last week? Oh, the man say uh, he's no longer got the ghost because the ghost is in his Oh, no, that's another story. That was a ghost story. But there's ghosts tonight in this, too, so don't... If you're, if you're looking for ghosts and goblins, they're in this Jataka tonight. So tonight you're going to have trouble sleeping. <laughs> That's a different story. Remember, we're talking about the conditions. Okay? The conditions of this were that a certain treasure of a city brought a bunch of disciples to listen to the Buddha. Who is that treasure? Nobody remembers. And it wasn't the treasure of the city. It was a lay disciple. In the Jada Grove, in the garden of the benefactor, the orphans, and the solitary. Oh, somebody's saying, no, I remember. It was Sudipantaka, right? Everybody remember? So Sudipantaka gave the Jada Grove to the Buddha. But Prince Jada kept the grove because it were his trees. He didn't cover the trees with gold, but he covered gold coins on the rest of them. Now, now I'm refreshing your memory? Okay, so let's, let's cut to the chase here. We won't have time to do this. This is a very long job again. In any event, Sudipandaka, because he's so inspired when he hears the Buddha, wants to share this. And so he gathers friends and whatnot uh, around him, and he brings them to where the Buddha is. And they sit and listen, and some of them are skeptical, and some of them are sincere and whatnot. But invariably... They, they really get inspired upon hearing the Buddha teach. Really get inspired. There, there must have been something very profoundly moving about hearing the Buddha actually speak. I mean, this must have been inconceivable. And so, the Buddha used to go back and forth between Shravasti, and what was in Shravasti? 
the Jada Grove and the Garden of the Solitary. <laughs> and Rajagriya, which was a farther away. And he would go and wander back and forth in this area. So when he would go to Rajagriya, then all of these people that came with Sudipandaka were really inspired, started to get a little lax. And they would wander off to these other teachers or just give up their cultivation completely and go back to drinking and carrying on and so on and so forth. And Sudapanika would feel so bad. And so the Buddha would come back to Shravasti and he'd say, come on, come on, come on, remember? Oh, maybe I'll check it out, I forgot. And he'd get these people back, brought them all back again. The Buddha would speak again and just speak wonderfully, speak well, inspire them, and they all draw near again. And then same thing would happen. So this went on about two or three times, okay? So finally, uh, the Buddha really delivers it to them and causes them, right while they're there, to begin having stages of enlightenment and awakening, finally with this group. And finally, most of them start to see really clearly. Now, where the text will pick up, then, here's the transition. When he had thus exhorted these disciples, the Buddha said, the Blessed One said, so too in times past disciples, the men who jumped to this fatuous conclusion that what was no refuge was real refuge, fell prey to goblins and demon-haunted wilderness and were bitterly and utterly destroyed. So I got your attention. So he's saying, these disciples who drew near and then slipped away and went into places that weren't refuge and then came back and then drifted away, those that drifted away and didn't come back were destroyed. They, they, they walked wrong paths and got confused. They got into superstitious teachings. They got into lucky teachings, you know, like if I have the right luck, kind of. All the ways that you seek for the truth that aren't directly the purification of your own mind don't lead to it. So he said, in the past, these disciples did this. Now he's talking about goblins and demon-haunted wilderness. Well, the people who cleave to, who stayed to the truth, the indispensable or indisputable dharma, prospered in that self-same wilderness. So those who had wrong leaders, who took refuge in wrong teachings, went into the wilderness and were destroyed. Those that took refuge in the Buddha, or what he's saying by analogy, went into the wilderness and they thrived. At this point, it says everybody became silent because now the Buddha is doing something. In his teachings, he's saying this condition that's happening right now has previous things that have happened before. And the disciples get really interested at this point. Get very interested. If I were to say to you, oh, and just as you were all gathered here tonight on Friday doing this and this and this, so too many lifetimes ago you gathered, you know, wherever. And he's like, oh, wow, that is really interesting. Where was that? It was last Friday. No. <laughs> so if you're having a day to move, that's what. Okay. So then rising from the seat and bowing to the Buddha, Ananda Pindaka burst into the phrases of the Buddha. He clasped his hands in reverence to his forehead and he said, It is clear to us, Buddha, that in these present days these disciples were led by error into forsaking refuge in the Triple Jewel. But the bygone destruction of those opinionated ones and the demon-haunted wilderness, and the prospering of men who stuck to the truth. This is hidden to us and only known by you. So Anandapitaka says, I got what you're saying, but we can't know this. Only you can know this. So, what is he saying? Tell us the story. 
So the Buddha says, okay. And then he goes in. Having excited the treasurer's attention, <laughs> he made clear the thing that rebirth had concealed from them. This is a fascinating line in the Jatakas. Now some of you might think the Jatakas are just sort of tales or aphorisms. But in these are very, very interesting, profound truths. But this line, he excited the treasurer's curiosity. Now the treasurer wants to know. And he made clear the thing that rebirth had concealed. What does that mean? What it means is that our knowledge of these past events in our lives is concealed by our rebirth. At the time of coming into being, it's like our memory is obscured or almost erased, and so we no longer see it. And the difference between ending birth and death and being subject to birth and death, when you end birth and death, you don't forget. You do not forget. You come into being and you go out with a clear memory of everything that happened before, and therefore you don't make mistakes. When we come in, because of the nature of grasping and ignorance, most of this is obscured from us. Most of this is obscured from us. This is very interesting. Okay, so that's an important line. And then he teaches this. Okay, so, ready for the story? So once upon a time, the city of Benares, in a distant country, there was a king named Brahmadatta. And in those days, the Bodhisattva was born into a merchant's family. The Bodhisattva being the Buddha in his previous life was born into a merchant family. And growing up in due course, used to journey about trading with 500 carts, traveling now from east to west and from west to east. Now, at the same time in this city, there was also a young merchant, a stupid blockhead. I don't have to translate it. Everybody knows what a stupid blockhead is? What's blockhead? Mutol. Blockhead. Okay. <laughs> and he lacked resources. Now, at the time of our story, the Bodhisattva had loaded up 500 carts with costly wares of Benares, and had got them all ready to start. And so had the foolish young merchant done the same. And the Bodhisattva thought, if this blockhead, <laughs> young merchant, keeps me company all along, and the thousand cards travel together, it will be too much for the road. It will be a hard matter to get wood and water and so forth for the men and for the grass and for the oxen and so forth. So he's thinking provisions and whatnot. He said, a thousand of us traveling together is, is going to put too much strain on what's available. Either he must go first, or I must go first. So already, in terms of planning ahead, you see the analogy from the text, thinking ahead, very clearly thinking, even the numbers that go. And so he sent for the other, and he laid his opinion and ideas before him and said, two of us can't travel together. Would you rather go first or last? Now, thought the blockhead, the other, there will be many advantages if I go first. I'll have the road which is not yet cut up. It'll be a nice, because you're, we're not talking about paved roads, we're talking about once these dirt roads get chewed up by the wheels and the wagons. My oxen will have the pick of the best grass. My men <laughs> will have the pick of the best herbs for curry. So like, you know, McDonald's or whatever you're saying, all the restaurants, are, they're going to have the best food. And the water will be undisturbed. What does that mean? Yeah, clean water. In other words, if you've ever gone someplace, um, 
when I was on the farm, for example, if we wanted to drink water from the pond, we would run out to the pond to get it before we let the cows out of the barn. Because once you let the cows out of the barn, they get in the pond, you know, they stir everything up, and then it's no fun drinking it. <laughs> Especially, well, I don't want to go into detail, but you get the idea. So they will say, we'll have the best of the water. And lastly, I shall fix my own price when I get there and barter, because I don't have any competition. Accordingly, he replied, I'll go first. And the Bodhisattva, on the other hand, saw many advantages of going last. For he said to himself, those who go first will level the road where it was rough. <laughs> okay. And I'll travel along a road they've already traveled. Their oxen will have grazed off the coarse old grass, <laughs> while mine will pasture with sweet young growth, which will spring up in its place. See how this other Bodhisattva is thinking. My men will find a fresh growth of sweet herbs for curry where the old ones have been picked. And where there's no water, the first caravan will have to dig to supply themselves, and we shall drink at the wells they dug. He's <laughs> like, okay, either way, I'm looking. And haggling over prices is, is really killing work. Whereas I, following later, shall barter my words at the prices they've already fixed. Because he's even thinking, I don't like to haggle over, this is like me, I can't even do it. I, you know, I never experienced this until I went to Asia. When I went to Asia, they'd, uh, I'd say, how much? They'd say, such and such, and I'd be ready to take No, 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 we've got to barter, we've got to talk. I said, well, he said, no, it's not America, you got to barter. So often I'd end up paying more than the first price. <laughs> I was so bad at this. But other people that know how to do this can really get a price down, right? But it's, you got to like doing this. I don't like doing this. Haggling? Some people really like, some people actually like haggling rather than anything they get. <laughs> really, they would rather go out and hang them than not buy anything. Oh, that was fun. Oh, <laughs> I haggled it. So he says, the Bodhisattva says, I don't like to haggle, I just get a fixed price. Accordingly, seeing all these advantages, he said to the other, then you go first, my dear sir. Very well, said the foolish merchant. And he yoked his carts and he set out. And journeying along, he left human habitations behind him and came to the outskirts of the wilderness. Okay? Now, parenthetically, this is added, and I must say you'll find this in Xuanzang's autobiography too. Wildernesses are not of one kind only. There are five. What are the five wildernesses? Anybody know the five different kinds of wildernesses? Hmm? Okay. Well, you think about it. One is obviously a robber wilderness. In other words, a wilderness that's plagued by robbers. They exist, believe me. Ran into them in India. There's also wildernesses that are plagued by wild beasts, tigers, lions, snakes, right? These are wildernesses that you have wild beasts. There's also wildernesses that are plagued by no water, drought wildernesses as they're called. Now there's another wilderness that's plagued by famine. In other words, nothing grows there. And then finally, there's a demon wilderness. Okay, now we're going to find out. The first is when you're beset by robbers, the second beset by lions and other beasts, the third is when there's no bathing water or drinking water to be get, uh, the fourth is when there's no roots or other foods to be found, but the fourth is when the road is beset by demons. And in this fivefold category, the wilderness in question was both a drought wilderness and a demon wilderness. Okay? So you've got no water and you've got demons. Now this is setting up the story. According to the young merchant, took great 
big water jars on his cart. He knew this in advance, so he packed up with water. And filling them with water, set out to cross the sixty leagues of desert which lay before him. Now when he reached the middle of the wilderness, the goblin who haunted it said to himself, Hmm. Now we have to imagine this is a goblin talking. I don't want to scare you. No kids here tonight, right? <laughs> the goblin says, I will make these men throw away their stock of water, and then I'll devour them when they all get tired and faint. Demons like to eat people. <laughs> They're not vegetarian. Uh, my guess is this might be a translation of Rakshasha. The, the Rakshasha is a division of ghosts and spirits that eat people. So he framed by his magic power, and they also have magic powers, he framed by his magic power a delightful carriage drawn by young white, young white bulls. So really handsome oxen pulling the carriage. And with a retinue of some ten to twelve goblins, bearing bows and quivers, swords and shields, he strode to meet them like a mighty lord in his carriage with blue lotuses and white water lilies wreathed around his head and wet hair and wet clothes and with muddy carriage wheels. So by his magic powers, he made this appear. He was all moist and wet. The carriage was all covered in mud and wet. Why would he do that? We'll find out. You, if you've got imagination, you already know where this is going. So his attendants, two in front of him rear, went along with their hair and clothes wet with garlands of blue lotuses and white water lilies on their heads and with bunches of white lotuses in their hands, chewing the stalks and dripping with water and mire. Of course, why lotuses? Yeah, they grow in this really mucky water. So where there's lotuses, there's got to be water and a lot of it, like the lily pond, you know, the lily pads you see. And so now the leaders of the caravans, following the custom, this is a custom. Whenever the wind blows in their teeth, they ride in the front of their carriage with their attendants around them and escape the dust. That's what it said. And when the wind blows from behind them, then they ride in the fashion near the rear to escape. And on this occasion, the wind was blowing against them, and so the young merchant was riding in front. When the goblin became aware of the merchant's approach, <clears throat> he drew his carriage aside from the track and greeted him kindly, asking him, Where are you going? And the leader of the caravan, too, caused his carriage to be drawn aside and to let the other cars pass while he stayed <clears throat> and addressed the goblin. He didn't know it was a goblin, by the way. So it says he addressed the goblin, but he's addressing this very noble, moist being. He looks very relaxed. Oh, we're just on our way from Benari, sir, said the blockhead. But I observe that you have lotuses and water lilies on your hands and your heads, and that your people are chewing these really luscious stalks and that you're all muddy and dripping with water. Pray, did it rain while you were on the road? And did you come on pools covered with lotuses and water lilies? And the goblin said, <laughs> What did you say? Why, just yonder. There appears this dark green stretch of the forest. And there, from there on in, there's nothing but water all throughout the forest. Mmm. And it's always raining there. This is a little rainforest. And the pools are full. And on every side there's lakes covered with lotuses and water lilies. And then as the line of carts passed by, he asked where they were bound for. Well, to such and such a place was the reply. And what wares have you got in this cart and this? And so on and so on. And what 
might you have on this last card, which seems to be moving as heavily as all the others? Oh, that's water, said the merchant. Hmm. Well, you did well to carry the water with you from the other side, but there's no need of it now, as water is abundant up ahead. Can't you see? So why don't you break the jars and throw the water away? You'll travel a lot easier. You won't be encumbered. You, you know how heavy water is, right? You've ever tried that? If you go backpacking or something, the heaviest thing you've got to carry is your water. Right? So he's saying, you've got all this water up ahead. You'll get there faster. Just get rid of this stuff. And he added, now continue on your way as we have stopped all wrong too ready. Uh, stopped to talk too long already. And he went further on until he was out of sight. Then he made his way back to the goblin city where he dwelt. And such was the folly of that foolish merchant that he did exactly what the goblin told him to do. He had his jars broken and the water was all thrown away without saving so much as would be going the palm of a person's hand. Then he ordered the ox carts to drive on. But not a drop of water did they find ahead. And the thirst exhausted the men. All day long till sun went down, they kept on the march. But at sunset, they unyoked their carts and made a circle, and they tethered the oxen to the wheels. And the oxen had no water to drink. And the men had no water to cook their rice with. And they just tired out, and they sank down to the ground to sleep. But, here we go, as soon as night fell, the goblins came from their city, and they slew every single one of those men and oxen. And when they had devoured their flesh, leaving only the bare bones, the goblins disappeared. Thus the foolish young merchant, the sole cause of the destruction of that whole band, whose skeletons were strewn in every conceivable direction, while the 500 carts stood there with their loads untouched. That's the first part. Go on? Okay. We'll read the rest until you have to leave. Now, the Bodhisattva allowed six weeks or so to pass before he started. Then he proceeded from the city with his five other carts and in due course came to the outskirts of the wilderness. Here he had his water jars filled and he laid an ample stock of water and by the beat of the drum he had his men assembled in the camp and addressed them. Let not so much as a palmful of water be used without my sanction or approval. There are poison trees in this wilderness, and no man among you may eat leaf, flower, or fruit from any of those that you haven't eaten before and know to be safe, or without asking me first. Now you see the parallel to the text. He sets up the instructions, he thinks about it very carefully, and he makes sure that they know what they need to know to make this journey. And with this exhortation, he pushed on with his men and his 500 carts into the wilderness. And when they reached the middle of the wilderness, the goblin made his appearance on the Bodhisattva path, just like before, muddy card coming and whatnot. But as soon as he became aware of the goblin, the Bodhisattva saw through him. And he thought to himself, there's no water here. This is called the waterless desert. Duh. It's obviously called the waterless desert for a reason. And besides, this person has red eyes, an aggressive bearing, and casts no shadow. So, some of you are wondering, are you going home tonight? 
<laughs> and you run into a goblin. Red eyes. Now, that could be anybody partying in, in so okay, right? What was the other thing? Aggressive bearing. No but no shadow. I just check it here to see everybody's got a shadow. Very likely he has induced the foolish young merchant who preceded me to throw away all his water and then waiting until they were worn out has eaten up the merchant and all his men. But he doesn't know that I'm as clever, I'm more clever than he is. Then he shouted to the goblin, Be gone! We are men of business and we don't throw away water we have got before we see where more is to come from. <laughs> but when we do see more, we may be trusted to throw away the water and then lighten our cards. The goblin rode on a bit further till he was out of sight, and then he went back to his demon city. But when the goblin had gone, the Bodhisattva's uh, men said to him, Okay, here's the, the point. Sir, we heard from those men that just went through that there's a dark green streak of forest coming up. And they said it's always raining there. And they got these beautiful lotuses in their head, and these water lilies in their hands, and they're eating those luscious stalks. And their clothes in here were raining wet, with streaming water off of them. Why don't we throw our water away and get out, get a bit quicker and lighten our load and get there? And hearing these words, the Bodhisattva said, Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. Okay. Everybody come together. Because they were rumoring, talking about this. Tell me, said he. Now, what do you think he's going to do? This, I, I was kind of surprised with it, but I really like this next passage. What do you think the Bodhisattva is going to do? They're, they're thinking, okay, he's had this encounter. He didn't tell him it was a demon or anything. Now, they're thinking to, them, to themselves, yeah, we just saw these guys go through this whole, like the whole thing, so what are we doing carrying this water, right? So what's he going to say to them? If he says, it's a demon... Will they believe him? Probably not. See, he's got some very clear scene. I mean, most of them don't even know if it doesn't cast a shadow, it's a demon. They probably never learned this. They probably thought it was just high noon. Okay, so what's he going to do? Okay, I'll read it. What's that? Send scouts. That would be that would be smart. That would be smart. He doesn't send scouts. He uses reason. Very interesting. He says, "Tell me, did anyone among you ever hear before today that there was a lake or a pool in this wilderness? Because this was a a route that we got through." And he said, "No, actually, it's always been called the waterless desert." And the Bodhisattva says, so? And we've just been told by some people that it's raining on a head in the belt of a forest. Now how far does a rain wind carry? A league, they said, sir. And has any rain wind reached anyone here? Mm, no. And how far off can you see the crest of a storm cloud? Oh, at least a league, sir. And so, anybody here seen any storm clouds up ahead? Even a single storm cloud? Have you seen any clouds at all? 
Well, come to think of it, no. And these guys are not real bright. And he says, how far off can you see a flash of lightning? Well, at least four or five leagues, sir. Anybody see any lightning? No. Well, how about, how far off can you hear the peal of thunder? Oh, two or three leagues at least. Anybody hear any thunder? Hmm, no, come to think of it, I haven't. He says, these are not men, they're goblins. And they will return in hope of devouring us when we are weak and faint and we throw away our water just as they taught us, you know, bid us to do. As the young merchant who went on before us was not a man of resource, most likely he has been fooled into throwing away his water and he's been devoured when the exhaustion hit him. We'll probably expect to find 500 carts standing just as they were loaded from the start. We shall come upon them even today. So press on with all possible speed. Don't throw one drop of water away. And urging his men forward with these words, he proceeded on until they came upon the 500 carts standing just as they had been loaded and the skeletons of the men and oxen lying strewn in every direction. He had his yard of carts unyoked and ranged in a circle so as to form a strong ring. And he saw that his men and oxen had had their supper early. The oxen were made to lie down in the middle with the men around them. And he made he himself, with the leading of the men, stood guard that night, sword in hand, three watches throughout the night, waiting for the dawn. And on the morrow of the daybreak, when just they had fed their oxen and everything useful was done, he discarded his own weak carts for stronger ones, and his own common goods for the most costly of the derelict goods. Then he went on to his destination, where he bartered his stock for wares twice or three times their value, came back to his own city without losing a single man out of all his company. Okay? And thus ends the story. Now, the, the final. Who's who here? Remember? The story always at the end of who's who. So, now you can imagine Sudi Pontica is going, whoa, <laughs> that was one awesome story with a lot of principle in it. Thus it was, Laban, that in times past that the fatuous came to the utter destruction while those who stuck to the truth escaped from the demon's hand, reached their goal in safety, and came back to their homes and families again. And then when the Buddha had explained this whole thing, he said, you know, once you're on the path and you know this to be the path, don't waver and don't take refuge in anything that's false and you'll certainly reach your destination and be safe. Uh, and then he said, if you do that, and he talks about the destination being the four truths and so on and so forth and realize enlightenment up to the dust come on. And he then expounded the four truths. Now, having delivered the lesson with his teaching and told the two stories, he established a connection linking that past event together. The master concluded, identifying the birth as follows. Who was the foolish young blockhead merchant in the past? You guys all know. Devadatta. And his followers were the followers of that merchant. And the followers of the Buddha were the followers of the wise merchant, who was myself. And thus ends the Jataka story about the merchant. There's a couple more here, but that's that's one of my favorites. Okay, so you stayed longer than, but I thought since the passage of text of the Avatamsaka used that illusion of the merchant, then I would read to you one of the stories.
Do not tell your kids this at home. Uh, so any, um, any questions or announcements that have to be made? The Friday night class uh, met last night for the last of the semester, so it won't meet next week. Uh, we will have another Avatomska class next week. I don't know if uh, Hunkshire will be back. If he's back, he will do the class. If he's not back, um, I'll stand in for him again, cover. Uh, the Amitabha session at the City of 10,000 Buddhas begins when? 19. What day? 19th or 20th of, of December. There's two weeks of Amitabha this year, uh, and then it's followed by, I think, three weeks of Chan. So this is the winter retreat um, that we have. Two weeks of Amitabha, three weeks of Chan, starting on the 20th of December. Anything else? Any other announcements? Going once? No. Going twice? Okay. So we will then transfer the merit in English.